a lot of people live in denial because they think that to be realistic is to be depressing. I'm Dr. Mike, host of Going There. It was the first song where I wrote about how I felt like my depression was killing me and I didn't want it. Going There breaks the stigma of mental health issues by having real honest conversations with your favorite musicians, including Alessia Cara, Lizzie Hale, Jewel, Jason Isbell, Gerard Way, Lauren Gray, Shamir, and Barty Strange. There was something there that was so raw where I was like, wow, I can't believe someone would say that. Let's go there on Going There with Dr. Mike, brought to you by Sound Mind Live and the Consequence Podcast Network every other Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome, everybody, to the Modern Drummer Podcast. Billy Amendola and I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming Chad Cromwell to the show today. Billy, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Hey, hey, Chad, how are you? Hey, buddy, how are you? I'm good. It was so nice to see you out at uh, Summer Nam. Boy, it was, wasn't it? Uh, I, that was a great little story. Uh, we Literally, the stars lined up on that because we would have in 15 seconds missed each other, just the way we were traveling through the building that day. I actually had to come back to the booth, which is, uh, was just good fortune because I had already tried to leave once and uh, had, had forgotten something, ran back and there you are. I know because the day before I came, you were gone already because we were trying to get together. And then I said, "Let's." I'm going one more time just to see if anybody's around and I walked in the right door right at the right time. Absolutely. So Absolutely. Meant, meant to be. So let me give everybody a little bit, you know, I, I of course, me and you would go back, you know, uh, oh, God, it's, it's probably 20 years or more. And yeah. uh, I first covered you in the March 04 issue of Modern Drama. And mm. at that time, you were a, a band member and on tour with Peter Frampton. That's so, right. 
let's start let's start right there um okay well before that how we had met actually and how we hooked up was through our mutual friend bobby mayo yes who was who was with peter frampton since frampton comes alive mm -hmm. and he he was one of the older guys in my neighborhood i grew up uh he grew up in brooklyn here so um same thing with john the original drama with peter so he kind of hooked us hooked us up but i had asked him in conversation i said i heard this song uh house uh house of love by vince gill and amy grant it was really amy grant's song and mm -hmm. i said my god who is playing drums i gotta find out who's playing drums on this and it happened to be you yeah so if, if anyone don't know that song uh house of love that's what it was called right yeah house of love mm -hmm. yeah amy grant and um vince gill you have to look up that record because that groove <laughs> it, it is like that is one of the best grooves I, I've ever heard. Smooth, oh, and, and then from there he introduces, and now let's take it into Peter Frampton. How, how was that whole experience? Because that's a, that was a couple of years, right? No, oh, yeah, that was well. You know, I, it was like it would. We I think we worked together on and off. I don't. I want to say around seven years, something like that. What was going on is uh, there was actually I was actually jumping back and forth between gigs. Uh, at that time, there I was work, obviously working with with Peter and Bobby and John uh, John Regan uh, for oh, his bass player, yeah, yeah, great bass player, a great friend. Um, uh, so we were doing that together, and then I was also uh, helping Mark Knopfler launch his solo career. He had he had disbanded uh, Dire Straits. And we were in the studio making a record in 95. So 96, we would have begun touring. And so I was bouncing back and forth between uh, sessions and tours with Mark to do sessions and tours with Peter. We just all kind of worked out for a, a few years there where uh, that was able to happen. I, it, it was a good fortune for me to get to, to be with both of those guys. But um, yeah, so, so Peter, just, uh, you know, badass quartet. What can you say? You know, it's great music, great playing, uh, wide open sort of playing, you know, no tools yeah. and clicks to lock to. Uh, just, a, just a band up on deck going for it, you know? I know. I, I was fortunate enough to see you a couple of times, and that that was a great lineup. That was really good. That was a... That was a good period of time it and really not too many like you said you were blessed to to have that kind of career because it just happened organically and not too many people there's only a few people mickey curry you know um there's only a few people who who were able to play with multiple people live and still yeah. keep the whole recording thing happening exactly yeah so yeah. That, that that was that's pretty cool i have no idea how we pulled that off because you know, it, it just, you know, when I, uh, I'm in Memphis, or sorry, I'm in Nashville. I don't know where I am anymore. I'm in Nashville <laughs> at our apartment here right now. And then our main home is over in LA. But uh, I was here uh, doing sessions since 1990 uh, in Nashville. And I remember people telling me when I relocated here, I remember them saying to me, look, if you're going to get into the studio scene in Nashville, uh, this touring thing, 
Yeah, yeah, I don't know that that's going to line up because you know they they want you know, they want you there, and if they get wind of the fact that you are on tour, everybody's going to think you're gone forever. You know, it's just this kind of thing that happens. You know, and so I thought, well, okay, you know, I'm going to take that on board and get myself established in town. Finally, did, uh, but I couldn't help it. I, you know, I couldn't just be a studio rat. You know, playing live is like a big deal to me, as much a big deal as being a session player, you know? So figuring out how to negotiate both of those things, keep it alive was, and like what you were saying, Mickey has, has been able to do. Looking back, I really don't know how we've pulled it off because in, I mean, when I started touring with Knopfler, we were on the European continent for four months, rehearsing for two months. So I was gone from, literally gone from Nashville and the United States for six months. And I can, when I came off of the tour, I just went right back to studio work. And it was, the clients were still there. They were still willing to, to hire me and wait around or do whatever. And uh, so it allowed me uh, this extraordinary gift of, of getting to be both, you know. Right. Yeah, no, that, that, that's, it just happened the way it was supposed to happen. I, I love the whole circumstance thing of how one thing leads to another. Yeah. And and talking about session work, when, you you know, you, you were born in Memphis and then you moved to Nashville in, in 90? Yeah, I came in, in 90. But I was actually, career-wise, I, I was based out of Memphis, commuting to Los Angeles and to San Francisco because I was real involved. It's same thing. I was involved in session work in LA. Then I was uh, 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 involved with Neil Young and still am, which took me north. And that was basically going to his ranch. So that was sort of like being sequestered, you know, and, and doing that kind of thing. So I was running back and forth between LA and San Francisco, living in Memphis. Wow, and, and playing with three major stars, Peter Frampton, Mark Knopfler, and Neil Young. And yeah. talking about live, I yeah. mean, for you, it must have felt great rocking in the free world. Not only did you record that, you played that live with Neil, you're in the video. Yeah. So it's like, that's a song that like, it feels like, this is what I like. I like playing live. I like playing in front of people and yeah. that energy, you know, that energy is there.
Let's go back a second now while we're talking about bass players, because we mentioned John Reagan, who right. is also a mutual friend of ours and everything. You've played uh, Rick Rosa, uh, Michael Rhodes, and then Willie Week. So any tips on playing with a bass player? Because you've played with some great, great bass players. Yeah, uh, yeah man. You know, that's a really good question, and almost nobody ever brings that up. Yeah, you know, what I do for a living as a drummer is not drummer-centric per se. It's, it's rhythm section-centric and song-centric. And then maybe somewhere a few rungs down the ladder will be you know, I'm going to play badass Phil right here, you know, be a drummer, drummer, you know, uh, but that's not so if, much a, if appropriate, right? If appropriate. if appropriate, yeah, yeah, if appropriate. But the thing to your question is in order to, for that to really get traction, then you've got to be working with a bass player that share the same language of music. The more, the more you can align with that, the, the deeper the pocket's going to get, you know, and the deeper the vocabulary between the players is going to get, you know. And so this whole thing just sets roots for brand new songs like like you, you brought up House of Love, you know. Well, that was that's an example. That was Tommy Sims on bass on that. Right. right. And so, you know, and actually, I think that was the first session I had ever done with Tommy. And it was boom. It was like, OK no need to discuss what's going to happen. We're feeling this the same way. So guys, like you mentioned, like, you know, with Michael and, and Willie and, and Rick, you know, rest in peace, my brother. Um, you know, those guys just, I had that language with, and, and it was just, it never seemed like work because we just interpreted the, the groove and the, the direction of the song from the foundation, we just felt it the same way. So I know that, that that's a great thing too, because you, as we know, playing with a great bass player just makes you automatically play better and not think, and then yeah. that magic happens. Absolutely. Because a lot of times the drummer gets the blame if it's not grooving. You know, <laughs> you, we we get the blame. You know, it's it's like well, you're not, it's not grooving. But yeah, neither is the rhythm guitar, neither is the bass. It's like come on. So yeah, man. Yeah, well, you know, you know the old saying, you know, the drummer might get the blame, but he is going to get the girl. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, <laughs> you know it's true. And my 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 love to to Wendy, I love Wendy. Oh, thanks, you know, man. I love Wendy. thanks. She said she said to me last night because she knew I was going to talk to you. Uh, and she said, "Be sure to get a lot of pictures," and I went. Pictures of what? <laughs> how are we going to, I mean, how do I do this? So it's, before we all hang up, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to get a quick still shot of the screen, if you guys don't mind, and I'm going to send it over to her. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. And Wendy, by the way, uh, just to give a shout out to, to Wendy, she has her own career singing background with, I mean, besides Ringo, I mean, so many people. And and then now we'll, let's go into Joe Walsh because- yeah. The last thing you did that I saw you, you and, and Uncle Joe, I call Uncle Joe, he's like my Uncle Joe Vitale, um, <laughs> and Wendy singing background, and that's a great band. Yeah, yeah, that's and a great band. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, now you've had a long career with Joe Walsh as well.
Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I'll go back to 86 with Joe. And uh, probably most notable, uh, as far as recording goes, I did, we did a record together called Ordinary Average Guy. That was a, actually a really big hit for him. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was very early on in, in uh, my working with Joe, who I met in Memphis at the, at the time. That's how we connected. And um, uh, yeah, playing with Joe is like, I've, I've, my first way of working with Joe was as a trio. It was just me and Rick and Joe. And it was just, you know, I, I, got, a, I got a real education in what electric guitar, uh, the rhythm, how important rhythm is to solos. And Joe, like, really, really just taught me so much about that. And, to, you know, and about groove and pocket and all that, and soloing all at the same time, which is a, a huge load to carry uh, for him. But man, there's not anybody better at doing trio rock and roll guitar playing than that guy. Yeah. That goes back to James Well, how how was it compared to Frampton? Like when you look at playing behind these two legendary guitarists and they're both grooves. Yeah, Yeah. very, very similar. Um, You know, in, in the compositional aspects of the way they play, you know, it's like, you know, when you listen to Peter play, he's incredibly melodic in his solos. And, um, but the thing that's so it's, but there's, it's compositional. So it's like, it's like he's playing a solo that might be five minutes long. But so how is it that after we hear Peter do a a song with the super, super long solo, why is it that we can remember the contents of that solo and then we can listen to some other virtuoso chop monster, you know, notes kind of thing. We can listen to those guys. I can't remember a damn thing they play. You know, I, I mean, it's it's like it's like mind-bogglingly technical and and impressive, but from a song point of view. And a hook it, it's not melodic, those other guys. Right. What, what Joe and Peter are playing are, are melodies and, and, and musical passages that happen to be part of their solo, which is what makes you remember it. Right. And as a drummer behind that, what are you, what's, what, you're locking in with the bass player. You know, how do you support them so that all of this sounds so great? Because what a lot of people don't realize is that what makes the guitar solo as great as it is is the fusion of all of the band members playing together and it's what you don't play and how you do play the things that you're executing that bring it all together and make it sound awesome as opposed to just good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, um, what it feels like from my point of view as a, as a drummer that, that, uh, that's playing for, you know, let's just say, let's say Joe, you know, um, I remember how I felt when I heard the first four or five notes and I already knew what the song was, you know, of the intro of Funk 49. And, and so what that feels like is like, 
we're getting ready. I'm getting ready to play this song with this guy, you know, and, and, um, you know, with Peter, it's, do you feel that same feeling of like, Oh, this is the, I can't believe I'm here. I'm actually like playing the, these iconic songs with these amazing artists and, and it's computing with me as a young player that this is all about songs, guys. This is mostly about that, you know? And then the playing, the brilliant playing that gets to go with it is the icing on the cake. And uh, uh, so from a drummer's point of view, it justifies every risk I ever took to get to do this for a living, you know? And uh, there aren't that many of those guys out there and gals that there just aren't that many out there that are that um, impressionistic on a whole culture, you know? And, and, and have that long span of, of a career. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're not a flash in the pan. I mean, God, yeah. they're still relevant just as much today as they were then. Absolutely. And, and, you know, they literally are the, the records keep coming, you know, the, the, the touring keeps going. I mean, G, you know, Joe's out, you know, killing it with the Eagles right now still. And Peter's recording a couple of miles from here, you know, because he's just a pure musician and it's sort of a never ending process. Neil is the same way. Uh, just, just incredibly prolific and almost like, it's all these guys, all, they have this kind of uh, childlike energy for doing it. And it's like, it's almost like nobody can help it. It's, it's, it doesn't matter. Well, I had the da, 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 hit record by, that posted, uh, you know, chart position three, da, 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 that's for 16. You know, there are guys out there that are just obsessed with success. And then there are the guys that are obsessed with what, like, what am I writing next? You know, when is the muse coming for the song? When, when do I get to be in the studio with my band again? All that stuff, you know, is, is like, it, it doesn't matter what the hits were, what matters is where we're headed, you know, like what's the forward momentum of-, of Right, and no, no resting on your laurels. They still right. move forward and they're breaking new ground. That's right, that's exactly right. Yeah, Dad, we, when, when I look at your, resume of the artists with whom you've played we this podcast could literally be 10 hours long and i'm not saying that <laughs> to, to 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 be funny or stroke your ego or anything of the sort i'm saying it because i really want all the listeners out there to google uh to your work and really understand the breadth of it um so i'm just going to take some of the highlights and i'd love your input like you've you've played a lot with lady a right formerly yeah. known as lady mm -hmm. antebellum and right. you know, massive stars. Tell us about that. Well, it was it was uh, uh, the beginnings of it for me were through their producer uh, named Paul Worley, and Paul is a is a good friend of mine here in Nashville, and an iconic Hall of Fame uh, producer, session guitarist. Uh, he, he's just incredible. If you want to look somebody up and and get your mind blown. That's a guy you want to look up uh, as it's to do with, with music in Nashville. Uh, I, I, I don't want to go too, too far into it, but I'll tell you this. He's produced, now I'm not talking about albums, I'm talking about singles. He's produced 42 number ones in out-of-country music. 
that's got nothing to do with the record sales or the record, all of that. So Paul Worley's so that that's how I got invited into Lady Annabellum's or Lady A's uh, uh, world. You know, they were just getting started. Paul signed them and uh, and wanted to work with them, produce them, and um, they got just into the beginnings of the first record. And then Paul brought me in to play on, I don't know exactly how many tracks it was. It turned out to be quite a few on the first record. And then we just ran together uh, all the way up through, um, through uh, the one with Need You Now on it. And, you know, their, their biggest, those big, big hits. Through yeah, that. although they had a, a, a good, it's almost like a greatest hits album, that one album. Oh, yeah, no, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's just one hit after another. And uh, so that's how I met them. And, you know, they're just, they're, they're incredible talents, all, all three of them. And, uh, you know, their, their track record speaks for itself, obviously. And, and uh, but great, great, really great band. And now going back, a lot of people may not know that you played on Leanne Rhymes' debut album. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even know. <laughs> I was playing anyway. That's a long story, but, but yeah, uh, she was a she was a kid. Oh yeah, little bitty thing, and uh, and I, we got brought in to to play on on her music, and you know I remember um, as I recall, this is a long time ago, Billy, but but as I recall, we overdubbed on some tracks that her she had already sung on, right. So I, I didn't meet her the, for the, at, at the very beginning there. I played on that stuff, but I didn't, we weren't in the room at the same time together. But I remember when uh, we started playing on the, the songs, put the cans on, start playing, and here's this voice, you know, and I'm thinking, who, who is this? You know, and, and they told me who it was, and, you know, in one ear, out the other, next session, see you later, bye. Didn't think a thing of it. And uh, as it turned out, it was, you know, it was a huge record for her. Iconic. Yeah, yeah. And, and you've played, and Chad, you've played a lot with Amy Grant. That's been another yeah. mainstay of yours. What What are some of the hits you played on and what uh, with Amy and how, and tell us like your approach to, to Amy, you know, her music. Cause you, you know, most drummers don't have the kind of staying power that your discography has, you know, where it's not just a one and done thing. And there's nothing wrong with one and done, by the way, because right, right. that's how we all make a living is, is playing on records and as many as we can. But it, in your case, it's it's gone much further than that because that you're you're on the next one and the next one and the next one. So you're obviously approaching it so spot on that it's working perfectly for the artists. And I want the listeners out there to try to understand how they can apply that to their playing. So let's use Amy Grant, if, if that's cool with you, as like a case study yeah. Yeah, on yeah. that, since you have a, a big discography that's with her. Never, never, never
that's a good one because, uh, um, you know, Amy, it, Amy's a, a pure songwriter and, uh, and I'll just use, I'm going to use house of love as, as the template for what your question is, because, um, you know, a lot of things kind of merged with, with her as a writer and as an artist and as a, a singer, you know, kind of interpreting music the way she does it. And, um, her producer uh, on that project, uh, he, uh, he, he was just, uh, oh man, I'm Keith Thomas. Sorry, Keith, I was spaced out there for a minute. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, Keith was her producer at the time. And Keith is like a virtuoso musician, producer. Legend, really. He's, oh man, he's just, he's just produced tons and tons of, of, of pop hits, you know? And uh, so we're, anyway, we're, we're on this song. And by the way, that, that song House of Love is written by Wally Wilson and Kenny Greenberg, who are both really, really close friends of mine, particularly Kenny. Kenny and I are like brothers. And uh, uh, so they wrote that song. So we're there, uh, you know, to do, to, to do this track. Well, the, the, the demo of the song was uh, I had actually played on the demo as well. And the demo was just pretty much a straight up R&B kind of a groove, you know, and um, very much a Memphis influence thing, or you could say some Muscle Shoals in there, or, you know, just kind of a definitely R&B. And so she loved the song. And uh, the, so the song kind of called her, called to her, in a way that that she really connected with, then Keith, with all of his pop influences, you know, took that R and B groove that that song uh, had, and then he elevated it into sort of more of a pop music approach, rather than us just staying really pure and true to just R and B, right? So this is this kind of intersection happened, and and Amy because she's such a great natural musician, she, she understood how all of that was merging in, in just the right way at just the right time in her career. And uh, bang, you know, hit record. Yeah, you had, you, you brought that Memphis sound. I mean, that, that, that groove hit me so hard. And, you know, and we didn't know each other at that time. So I didn't know you, you know, if you were an R&B drummer, if you, you know, I knew you were in Nashville, a country drama. So it, it is, I mean, you know, it's, it's Roger Hawkins. It's like yeah. Al Jackson. It's like yeah. you brought you brought that feel right to that record. And I, and I think that's what made her even sing it, even the way she yeah. did. And, you know, it, mm -hmm. it added. Now, talking about producers, you've worked with amazing producers. Dave Stewart of the Eurythmics, obviously. Yeah. And you did a record, Josh Stone record. I think yeah. that might that might have been her that might have been her last record because now she had a baby and she's doing really well, relaxing. But you did that Josh Stone record, and I remember the the, the sound quality of that record. I don't was that recorded differently or something? the sound quality of that record was incredible. Uh, uh, Josh's record, you mean? Yeah, with Dave. Uh, yeah, yeah. That well, we tracked it at Blackbird, and. Um, in Nashville. Yeah, in Nashville, here in Nashville. And um, there was a particular happy accident that happened 
on the, the first sessions that, that I did with Dave that ultimately became the, this band that we kind of have together with Dave now, uh, recording band, uh, Dave wanted to be in the room with us. And so the kit was out in the main room, you know, the ambient, uh, you know, big space, mm -hmm. you know. And Dave wanted to be in kind of in the room with where we were all sitting. So they set up an uh, a, 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 a SM7, which is for those of you who don't know what that is, that's a microphone, a specific type of condenser mic that's made to, to manage a lot of external uh, sound uh, in a way that allows someone to, to sing or speak into the microphone without too much bleed onto everything. So it was kind of a, a risky thing to do because whenever you put a microphone in a room where the drums are. So you were cutting those rhythm tracks together? Yeah, live. yeah, we were doing rhythm tracks. And anyway, there was a sound that actually came from the fact that his little vocal mic, scratch mic, was set up so that he could talk and sing and do whatever while we're figuring out arrangements. Well, if you muted the, <laughs> that microphone, it messed up the whole drum sound. You know, and so if you took the mute off of the mic, there it is. It's that huge kick-ass thing going on, you know. So so that mic, whenever we're in the studio together, that SM7 goes up. Dave's usually not there on that mic anymore, but the happy accident created a sound that then carried over into Joss's project, project right? Because it's really a a pretty specific group of guys that record uh, those records the, when Dave's producing them. Right. And, uh, and uh, uh, so that's how that, that those records sound the way they do. If you listen to Blackbird Diaries of Dave's, which was the first record we did together, you'll hear what I'm talking about. If you compare that with Joss's record. And then we just made another one last fall. Wow, and then was this uh, before or after Stevie Nicks? Because a lot of people don't realize that uh, they produced a Stevie Nicks record in Nashville with you yeah. guys. Joss was before Stevie. Yeah. And the yeah. same technique with the mic he used? Pretty much. The, Pretty much. Chad, was the SM7 stereo or, or no, one mono just SM7? Mono. Just mono. Okay, yeah. gotcha. I mean, you know, the funny thing, the ironic thing about all this is that you know, uh, John McBride, the, uh, uh, the uh, engineer uh, that works with Dave is also the owner of Blackbird Studio. And he's got, without question, the best microphone collection in the world. And so he's got these mics all over my kit. There's probably a, a quarter of a million dollars worth of microphones sitting on my kit but then they set up a $375 microphone for, you know, for the scratch vocal that ended up turning out to be a huge influence on the overall drum sound, you know? So it's just funny how in mysterious, how Sonics can really do some funny stuff in, the, in, a, in a studio and you never know from where it's gonna come. And it's not always the most expensive microphone. And it's always a happy mistake, which is great. 
Yeah, it makes it fun. Yeah. All right. There's two things I want to cover real quickly before we go. Right. One, uh, playing with Paul McCartney. When Paul McCartney, because I, I, a lot of people don't know that backstory. I'll make it try to make it real quick. The backstory was Mark Knopfler wanted to, uh, no, Neil wanted yeah. to do, Neil Young wanted to do A Day in the Life. You guys were learning it and wind up doing it. And then Sir Paul McCartney comes out at Hyde Park and sits in with you guys. How was that? Well, what you just said, you encapsulated what was what was over two years of time that transpired, right from the time that that he called me into his room in Florence. I'll never forget this because it just came so far out of left field, you know. But we were uh, I, I was was just coming into that tour with him, and we were doing production rehearsals in Florence, where the tour, the summer leg of that particular tour in 08 started. And so we were camped out at this, this hotel in, in Florence and working and, and rehearsing and blah, 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 getting ready. And uh, one afternoon he just called me, he just says, can you come into the room for a minute? I went, sure. And what, you know, and whenever that happens, you're not sure, <laughs> what, you're really not sure what's getting ready to happen. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so, so anyway, I went up there and I said, and he goes, man, check this out. He goes, uh, listen to this, you know. So he puts on Day in the Life, you know. And uh, and we're sitting there listening to it. And I'm going, okay, I'm here and I'm here with Neil. Why are we listening to the Beatles? You know, what he's just is he lonely? What what's going on here? You know, got a memory, I don't know. And it just seemed odd, a bit odd. And and so <laughs> the day in the life finishes, and he goes do you think we could do this song? You know, and I said, well, I said, by virtue of the fact that you would even ask me that question says we have to do this song. We got to do this. And he goes, all right, then we're going to start rehearsing. We're going to start rehearsing this thing. And uh, so little bit by little bit, every, you know, everybody was, was learning their parts and it was so cool to watch Neil work those guitar parts out. Cause that's not simple to play that and sing it. You know, it, it might sound that way, but it's not that simple and it, to do it correctly, you know? And um, so Neil's not used to working up other people's music at all, you know? And so it would, anyway, we're working away at this thing and we would literally work on like a, an eight bar section each day, you know, very slow learning process. I'm used to, in what I do for a living, I'm used to doing that in 30 minutes, but it's just a, this is very much a band scenario and working it up real organically and slowly. So we just got, kept getting better and better and better at it and sound checks. And, um, and finally he just said, let's do this thing. Let's do it, you know, so. Uh, I don't remember what city we were in the first time we did it, but I do remember we're going to be doing this song a lot because people were absolutely losing their minds at the arrangement that we, we did of it. And so fast forward from the summer of 08 to the end of the summer in 09, we were the, our last show uh, was at uh, Hyde Park Calling Festival in London. And we're playing and it's our last night and there's gonna, 
big dinner thing uh, after after the gig and everybody says goodbye, you know, just end of tour stuff. Yep. The party uh, is going to happen. And so we're all thinking, everybody's like, we're going home, we're going home, we're going home. And we get to the end of the show. And really the show was almost like a blur to me because we had just done the night before we did Glastonbury Festival. So Hyde Park looked like a club gig compared to Glastonbury. So it was just kind of, you know, we were just kind of winding it down. That's not that we weren't rocking, but it was just that, you know. And uh, we get to the end of the show, you know, we finished the set with Rockin' in the Free World and there's cheering and everything for Neil to come back out. And I could see my drum tech told me, he ran up to me uh, and right before we uh, started rocking in the free world, he ran to me, he said, Paul's here. And I said, what, what? He goes, McCartney is here. He's here with his fiance. They're over at the monitor console. I went, holy shit. So we play rocking in the free world and I excitedly run off the stage with everybody else to get ready for the encore. And I run up to, I run up to Elliot, Neil's manager, who's standing there. And I said, McCartney's here. And he went, what? And I said, Paul McCartney's here. You, you, you know, he's here. You know, and I knew we were getting ready to do Day in the Life. And he goes, I don't give a fuck who's here. This is the Neil Young concert. And we're going to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, Elliot, you gotta tell Neil before we go back out there. He has to know, man. He's not gonna be happy if he finds out after the fact that he's there. So, you know, he kind of begrudgingly, right before we went on, he just sort of whispered, ran up to, to Neil, whispered his ear. Next thing I knew, I saw Neil shoot across the stage, back in front of the crowd, they go nuts. Then <laughs> he went straight over to Paul, they hug, and I went, great, at least, that happened and now we're going to play this song for Paul. We get up there and we play this tune and it's rocking. It's all doing what it's supposed to do. And then we get to the middle eight section of day in the life. That's the part Paul wrote. Okay. I woke up. Huh? That's the part that Paul wrote. Lennon wrote everything else. Unless somebody can tell me otherwise, I know that's the way it went. Uh, here comes Paul. And he just <laughs> walks out on stage, you know. That's amazing. And all this is on YouTube, if you guys want to look it up, if you haven't seen it. Uh, it's, it's on YouTube. He comes out, and then it's just all hell breaks loose from there on, man. And it's just, it was obviously way near the top of the musical moments. What a way to end the, the tour, too. That put the cherry oh, right on. Yeah, there. man, it was unbelievable. One yeah. last thing now. Let's talk gear. Yeah, so man. I want to thank you uh, for supporting uh, Modern Drummer. Um, that, you know, all, all the years that you've supported Modern Drummer uh, as both a player and, and now um, with Craviato. Um, the kit that I saw, let's talk a little bit about that Diamond series um, yeah. and some of the Craviato. Let's uh, briefly yeah, get man. into that. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, so, so I'm assuming that most everybody in the drummer world knows about Craviato drums now and Johnny's legacy uh, that he left behind with that just that amazing craftsmanship, you know, and artisan work that, that he's done or did do. And uh, so uh, 
on Johnny's passing, there was an evolution of time and I'll keep this short. Um, but, uh, but there was a, a bit of a, a question that for a while as, as to how the company would go forward without Johnny being as small a company as it, as it was, as, as artisan based as it was, it was just hard to imagine what that company could look like without Johnny. And uh, so fast forward, uh, things happened, it, th a, a remarkable things happened. And uh, one of which was the operation the, in its entirety was relocated from Watsonville, California here to Nashville. And so the factory, all the factory, uh, all the, the gear, the tools, the everything is done in Nashville now. And Sam Bacco is uh, heading up the, uh, the production of Craviato drums now and is the one and I think only guy that could inherit a task like that, maintain the quality that Johnny put into those solid shells and then take other visions uh, beyond that into the plied shell world where most of us have to live, you know? And, and so uh, Sam developed a kit called the Diamond Series. And uh, it's, I, I gotta tell you, it's one of the most remarkable drum sets I've ever played. Uh, I, we shot, we're, we recorded content yesterday. Uh, I used that kit, I specifically requested that kit. We're doing a big thing for the F1 racing team that are, that are in town for some kind of Grand Prix that's happening here. And uh, so the, the, the team is here, they're coming to the studio, blah, blah, blah. And I wanted the diamonds to be on that, that session, which I, I recorded the track for yesterday. And they're just super badass drums and uh, they're brilliantly made. The thought that's gone into these shells uh, spans a lot of time and experimentation on Sam's part to get everything where it is. And that, that's to do with the edges, that's to do with the interior treatment. Um, it's everything. And, uh, and the, the kit that I saw, um, that me and you took the photo with, that was just a, a display kit to show all the different colors, right? Yeah, that, that's right. But you know what's really funny is that, was one of the big hits of the whole show. You know, know. If you weren't a drummer, you came, I saw people coming over to take pictures of the drums or with the drums because I, nobody, I don't know if anybody's it's seen the kit like that in a while, you know? It's eye candy, it's beautiful. Yeah, it absolutely that's, that's, why, that's why I said to you, I know you said it's hard to make, make kits like that because that wasn't the intent. But then I said to you, maybe you should think about like making just a few and renting them out for videos and because yeah. visualize they're gorgeous. Absolutely. And then, of course, they sound they sound amazing too. So that's you know that always helps. They really sound great and and they look great and they're you know there's a you know there's a little bit of a tip of the hat to the traditional uh, look of '60s era drums, you know, early right. 70s. Right. There's a little bit of that thing going on, but there's also a modern aspect to the kit, you know, and uh, sonically without question, um, I would encourage it, all the drummers to get out and check these drums out, mainly because the working guys, they've got to have a kit that's stable, 
that's tuning friendly in all the ranges, you know, high, mid, low. Uh, I've never heard any kit do that better, you know, go. And I prefer like a, a typically, I like lo much lower tunings, almost to the point of, bow, you know, like. Yeah, that thud, like that, that old, that 70s thud kind of. Yeah, I kind of like that, you know. And so I'll, I'll uh, tune for that on some of my kits and go for that, that very specific thing. These drums do it, and and oh, I, you know they're just everybody, everybody that has sat behind the the kits so far have either either just freaked out or bought them or ordered them or wanted to endorse a company or whatever. There's just a serious buzz. So that and the solid shell stuff that continues, uh, that's that those drums haven't ever been as in demand as they are right now it's just amazing what's going on so that's great yeah, yeah god bless god bless johnny and and you know johnny of course all those years he learned from the best with john good and and yeah. don lombardi you know so yeah. god bless you johnny wherever you are and uh, right, hopefully uh, his legacy will continue and, and thanks steve maxwell don't forget because steve maxwell yeah, you know what, david to life. that's that's very good point and very yes, important david. point is, is Steve is the captain. Uh, Steve is the guy that really stayed in there in the trench uh, to get all of the things that I was talking about with his, with the legacy of the company to fruition and where it is now. That's largely Steve's baby that made that happen. And uh, we all know uh, any of us who know anything about, about drums and vintage drums and retail are going to know about Steve and his shops. And uh, yeah, man. Oh, Good yeah. Steve. We this love, is, yeah, we love you, Steve. We got a beautiful thing going on uh, with these drums. And uh, we've got price points for the younger cats that are more budget minded. That's a lot of what the diamond stuff is about as well. It doesn't sound like a less expensive kit than the solid kit. It's just a different thing and a really great place to start. So, yeah. Well, Billy, listen, when do I order your kit? You decide what you want, and we'll figure it out, right? Yeah, we gotta get one over for a review. Yeah, we gotta, we gotta work on that. Well, listen, thank you so, so much um, for taking this time. I know you've been busy this week. Um, we reschedule a couple of times. Actually, Sarah Hagen sends her love. Uh, she, was gonna, she was gonna pop in and join us, but she's she's filming today herself, so she couldn't. When we made the change at the last minute, she couldn't do it. But she sends everyone out there her love, uh, and great. you can check out her podcast. She does a podcast as well. She's we all love Sarah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, thank you, David. Thank you, um, Chad. Everybody. Thank you, Chad. Yeah, man. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to meet you in person. Let's. Uh, I look forward to uh, a dinner sometime somewhere. It, it's going to happen. You can count on it. And I'll continued success and stay safe and healthy. Thank you. And you as well. Bye-bye.
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.